For me, as a writer and as a painter and as a teacher, sometimes it means taking the inside out of the belly and revealing it on the outside. The greater good lives in the heart, and it lives past the moment we're in, and it lives in the hope of what we can become. Hello and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here today with Fanny Green and Gary Lemons, a power couple who together probably represent six or eight artistic genres, which we will get into <laughs> shortly. Welcome and how are you? Thank you. Very well. Good. Good, good, good. So, since we are dealing with a number of genres, writer, mm-hmm. director, actor, writer, painter, teacher, <laughs> teacher, where would you like to start in terms of how you identify yourself as an artist? Fanny, would you like to begin? I identify myself as an artist-activist. So, that means that whatever particular art I'm making at the time, that activism is at the center of it. And it's interesting when Fanny says her work is connected to an activist standpoint, that's precisely the same place where my work lives. Because I don't think it's enough to represent art without putting it into a place of action and support for for me, social justice, and human rights. So activism and action, are they the same for you or? Well, I think for me, activism from an art making point of view to incite action. Hmm. So my art making is to delve into the realm of human experience, mostly on the stage and then to write human experience. And by doing so, then an audience member gets to place themselves in that world, either imaginatively or emotionally. But hopefully, my goal is never to have them so entertained that they'll forget, but so become so involved that the question that they ask themselves when they're out to dinner afterwards or when they're driving in the car is, is there something we can do? Or where are we inside of this picture? Are we ones that say, oh, that's nice, or oh, I didn't know about Mm -hmm. that? Or are we led to action. And for me, it doesn't always have to mean that you're carrying a sign. You can donate monies and that can be action. You can go home and research it on the computer and begin to tell other people that you learned about something and then that becomes action. But just to have something that the story or the commitment to tell the story goes beyond seeing it in the dark. You both live in Tampa and you teach yes. at USF, but yes. you're very involved in Pinellas County. I know. It's kind of funny. I'm just going to say <laughs> to all the things we do with Pinellas County. I'm really drawn to the artistic community that Pinellas County represents. Mm-hmm. I actually am in love with the work they do at American Stage. Just to see the scope of what they do and how that spills over into educational programming, the audiences that they've been able to foster and to bring in. And of course, you know, the commitment to produce each one of August Wilson's plays. Oh, you, of course, (laughs) in Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Oh, I think it's just a wonderful play. The universality of the play is about investigating human experience. And the specificity of that is the lens by which we explore it. There were wonderful themes in Joe Turner, displacement 
and where one goes when one is leaving a place and how um, you make community, also about community, also about identity. And we don't want to leave out the fact that it's specifically an African-American story about how you build community. And it's also about how you forge a future for yourself. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are pertinent especially right now. Because another thing we want to ask ourselves when we make theater and are investigating human experience is what is the context of the play for which the play was written, but the context that it speaks to of the time we're living in. And I think identity and community and forging a future is is aptly the time we're living in right now. And uh, playing that role is interesting. It was interesting and challenging and wonderful for me to play a role where um, women were on the cusp of, I think, finding what's vocal and managing, you know, one would say she's managing a household, but she's also silent inside of a realm of a world that was dominated mostly by men. And then you always have to keep remembering and reminding ourselves that it's specific to an African-American community. It's specific to African-Americans moving from the South to the Northeast and bringing with them all kinds of experiences that they carry in their hearts. It's specific to families being torn apart, a man searching for years for his wife. A lovely part of that play is that this father, and so so often in African-American stories, especially as we see them or as they are portrayed now, there is an absent father. Mm-hmm. But in this play, there is a father who is with his daughter and has been with his daughter for five years, walking on the road, looking for a mother. And to see this wonderful, very loving relationship between a father and a daughter, I think was really lovely to see. Two things struck me about your role in that play. One was you seem to me to be the grounding. And I'm sure it's, you know, of course it's written in the play itself, but you are the embodiment of it as an actress, and you always emanated joy. <laughs> and, and, and then a gravity of, of keeping people sort of connected to the earth and connected mm. to um, <laughs> to the real world and the, the home. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that struck me as I was watching it, as we are going in, in living in the United United States through what it is we are living through Mm -hmm. with our new political environment, Mm -hmm. where I think the dials are being turned and twisted harder and harder and Mm -hmm. harder to uh, fling people away from each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Somehow I I thought that play was such an important antidote to Mm -hmm. that as well mm-hmm. as telling the history of the African-American community in mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, Barbara, because it made me think about the work that I'm doing in the classroom as a specialist in African-American literature, mm-hmm. but specifically from a womanist standpoint. And I use that term womanist uh, in relationship to Alice Walker. And she has defined it in a very provocative way that I think really, really relates to the absence of a knowledge of the history of African Americans. And I I had the same impression that you had when I was looking at my wife on stage and that character, the woman, the black woman that she played. While, as Fanny was saying, in the play, men had a lot of power, but she had a voice that really resonated with a kind of, not just vocal laughter, but a spirit of unity. And so, you know, when we start thinking about life stories, particularly within uh, an African-American context, one of the things I say to my students is not 
enough for you to do this awesome analytical interpretation? What difference does it make to your personal lives? Because I teach this class in the evening, so many of these students are older students. I have a woman sure. in, in the class who's 58 years old. And then one woman who's, I think she's almost 60, African-American women. But when you walk in the room, you wouldn't think in a stereotypical way that this was a course on African-American literature. Mm. Because when you look around the room, you see all colors. And these students are coming from all over the world. And they're talking about their experiences of how the absent father experience or the father who may have been in the home but abusive to the mother and all, uh, the economic imbalances, instances of trauma related to drug addiction. And I say to my students, fiction often is more real than life itself, especially when you begin to, rather than have sympathy for the situations that the characters are experiencing, you move to this empathetic relationship right. where you step into their shoes and you begin to feel with a sensitivity that is related to your life. And then for me, that's the call to action. It's not enough, I say, for you to get an A in the course, but what do you take from this classroom to the living rooms of your everyday lives? For me, personally, artistic expression as a painter is about enabling people to realize the gift of artistry that everyone has been given. But first of all, you have to see it to believe it. And so, Barbara, for me, many of my paintings will have mirrors in them. It looks back at you, mm. right? And you look back at it. When you come to a piece of mine that has shapes and colors and then there's these mirrors you start to see yourself and it's like oh what am i doing in this piece i say you see yourself as a piece of art what most people will throw away <laughs> mm -hmm. i go into the garbage and rinse it off and like oh this would look perfect on this canvas and so the canvas becomes a place especially with the paintings with mirrors. And some of them are broken. Some of the mirrors are broken. But I use that as a symbolic representation of the broken pieces that we have to put back together again. So that you might come to a piece and you see all of these broken mirrors and it's like jarring. But that's an opportunity for you to contemplate critically, how do I put the pieces of my life back together again? I'm really interested in finding or recovering myself within an African context. I'm in search of that spirit of the creativity. And every time I sit down to paint, and I had stopped painting for a number of years because I'm like, you're teaching, so that's where you, the classroom, that's your job, and so stop that. But the spirit said, begin painting again. And this was several years ago. And I was a bit afraid because I'm like, I haven't done this in so long, I don't know what to do. Begin. And I used to, when I was painting many years ago, would draw the image and then paint. But it's not working that way now. The spirit said, begin. And not to be afraid, just begin. And so what I've come to understand is this trust. I'm going to take you back to the place where it all began. And all you have to do is to begin to paint. I'm obsessed with color. 
I look at patterns and shapes and colors and designs out of what I see repeated across African distinctions. Mm -hmm. And so what I've come to understand is I start to see myself in the colors and the mm -hmm. patterns. Mm -hmm. And for me, the canvas is not this flat place to put paint onto. I'm into dimensionality so that much of my work and, you know, people come up to it and they want to touch because it, I attach things to the canvas. Mm -hmm. Things that people usually don't want becomes an opportunity for me to reshape that and to incorporate it into the African patterns and shapes and colors. So it's all for me about recovery, to make that canvas be the representation of global diversity. Mm -hmm. So that no matter what color you are, when you walk up and you see yourself in those mirrors, you become part of the unity of our divine creation. The paintings, you know, have been living mostly in storage in the rooms in our house. And so when they were put up on the wall, then I realized the, the hugeness of the art. I'm going to liken it unto something that we both are, is that, you know, we're both ministers as well. So if I were preaching the sermon of walking into the space <laughs> of the, uh, into the Carter G. Woodson, I would have to say it was like walking into a new land and mm. seeing new faces. And it was it's almost like a kid coming into your own birthday party and you just realize, oh my Lord, and you don't know what to look at first because there's just so much life in this room. And what, what comes out at you, I think the colors met you first and the mirrors drew you in. And then the shapes made you consider. But it was the color hmm. this, that was almost like saying, come, come. Sure. You have stepped into the belly of something. You could only, I think, appreciate the shapes if you stood back from them to see them. But then the mirrors called you to mm -hmm. them. And mm -hmm. so then you, you, you went toward them. So if paintings would breathe, then they were breathing through the colors mm -hmm. that were on the canvases. If paintings could speak, then they would be speaking, I would say, through the, the shapes that were painted on the canvases. And if paintings had a, a, had a spiritual calling, then I think that, were, they, that, that was embodied in mm -hmm. the mirrors. And you know, I have no control over what you see when you enter into the space of the painting. It's all about what you want and desire that's beyond your imagination. It's not about me. It's about the force of life that called us to be together. So that painting becomes a point of connection. Sure. There was a smallness about my opinion. I mean, I know my husband is a gifted painter, but because they live <laughs> in my house and I want them to leave, there was a smallness about my respect for them. Got it. But when I saw them on the wall, then I realized 
that's the bigness of their potential. That they're just not something in the house that I regard casually. They, 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 there is a hugeness about them. That there is possibility that the, the bringing of these colors together in these patterns create infinite possibility. One day I was there and grandparents, I believe, brought their grandchildren into the museum. And now this the young man looked like he was about preteen and he was like, okay, okay, okay. And he looked around. He went over to a couple of them, but he was like, okay, can we not linger? Can we go? And then the granddaughter very quietly said to Terry, Lipsy Scott, the director, said to her, I want to paint. Oh, wow. And she brought the granddaughter to Gary and she said, I want to do that. And that's what I remember Mm -hmm. when I would see people on television or I Mm -hmm. would, you know, I would say, I want to do that, Mm -hmm. that. I want to do that. And when you can see something that ignites something in you, and it always starts just in this little girl in this little whisper, I want to be a painter. And she says, well, you can go meet him. He's here. And mm. she and, the, and her eyes were like, what? Uh, but, but those are kind of experiences can live. It could not speak to this young man. He, he admired the colors. He admired the shapes. And it'll, he, he went as far as he could go. And you know something, Fanny, it's interesting that you point this out. I'm trying to take males who believe that art is not a place where they want to be, particularly with painting in relationship to black males, young black males, because you find there's this internalization of stereotypes of masculinity and this idea, what do you want to be when you grow up? Football player, basketball player. I love football. I love basketball. You can throw a ball, you can put it in the hoop, but that ain't all you can do. You have artistic expression in you. Let's bring it out. There is certainly artistry in releasing a ball from your hand and watching the trajectory of it and it it going where you send it and and the arc of a basketball going when someone's making a three-pointer. So it's artistry in that, but there is the why. What's wonderful about your art is what you're offering is cho- is opening the toolbox of choices right. more because doors. you know there are more choices. There is there is the artistry in football. There's the artistry in painting. There's the uh, Gary is also a musician. There's the artistry in <laughs> oh. in being you know a musician. That so the but the gift that we give as artists and the gift mm-hmm. that we give as parents is that we, you offer choice. You have this very tall black man who is a teacher, who is, a, who is an artist, and an and, and artist in so many different facets, who is also a minister. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. What, what? Yes. I hug you too. One of my parents went as far as maybe fifth grade, and the other of my parents went as far as junior college. My father worked for the St. Petersburg Times. He was a janitor. My mother was a day worker, and then in later life, she opened her in-home nursery. But when I was small, my mother would go and clean houses over on Snell Island. And my father started off at the Orange Blossom Cafe and then got a job at the St. Petersburg Times. That he worked all of his life. And so you then, have deep roots in this community. Oh, yeah. I was born in St. Petersburg. Yeah. Born and raised. I went to uh, St. Pete Catholic. <laughs> St. Jude in Immaculate Conception. And so it was, education was important to them. 
really, really important to them. And so I had to read aloud and then I had to circle the words that I didn't understand and I had to look them up and then I had to use them in a sentence. And that way, you know, they learned through me as well. And so I was always just imagining. Some A student came into my office yesterday and they go, oh my gosh, you have Nancy Drew books. I said, I have all of the Nancy Drew books. Thank you. Me and that roadster, we would go along all, all over the place. And because, and I didn't realize until years and years and years and later that my reading aloud was such a gift that my parents didn't know that they were giving me because I I just didn't want to be bored to death. Mm -hmm. Then I would play with the reading aloud and I Mm -hmm. would read in the different voices. So it was a facility and a gift for purposes that I wouldn't understand until later. And then the other thing was that I was only allowed to watch certain things on the television. And one of them had to be Westerns since my father loved Westerns. (laughs) I got to watch Westerns and my mother loved detective shows. All of these things, you know, you take back. I was brought up in the Baptist church. And so for everybody who's going to hear me, you got to really hear me now. I'm not talking bad. I'm just saying that the theatricality of a church service Mm -hmm. is wonderful to be a part of. And I didn't realize how that would come back to service Mm -hmm. me as well. So I had the secret desire to want to do that. But that wasn't what was being promoted in our home. What was being promoted was, you know, a job you retire from in benefits and a house. And I remember I came home one day and I said, you know, I think I want to be an actor. You know, my dad said, well, good. You can act like a lawyer. (laughs) And my mother said, oh, that's fine. You can act like a teacher. You know, because they weren't working hard for me to chase something that they didn't see. So they weren't seeing African-Americans on television. You know, I also had parents that say you can be anything that you want to be. And so when I became that, they were perplexed. <laughs> they were like, what? Wait a minute. They, they gave me permission to imagine. And when I imagined a world larger than what they even imagined, it was a little frightening for them. Um, they didn't hold me back, but they didn't understand the potential of permission. They wanted me to do well. And of course, me, you know, just graduating from college was already better than they had done. But an actor? My mother was a domestic worker. My father was a ditch digger. My father went to Catholic school and finished ninth grade. My mother finished 11th grade, and ultimately she did get her GED, and I was just telling my students that last night. But when I finished high school, my parents never promoted necessarily the idea, you should go to college, you should go to college. The whole idea was that you need to make some money doing something. (laughs) So when I told them what I wanted to do to go to college, they said, okay, so what do you what is it that you want to pursue? I said, I want to major in art. I thought painting, drawing, design. And my father said, and how much money are you supposed to make with that? So I got the impression that art thing you want to do, that ain't going to work. I said, okay, mom, dad, I'm going to become a teacher. Okay, we know what that is. So I ended up with a double major in English and studio art. I said, I'm going to trick them. I'm going to, I'm going to be a teacher, but I'm still do what I want to do. <laughs> I grew up in a Pentecostal environment. Holy Ghost filled and fire baptized. And so it was all about this hyper-religiosity. It was hyper-conservative. 
in terms of rules and regulations about the differences between men and women and what you were supposed to do. And to be honest with you, art wasn't a part of that. And so I had to, basically, my artistic gifts had to, I, they, I had to go undercover. But, you know, after teaching became the avenue by which my parents were pleased that I would do. Mm-hmm. And by the way, they sent me $20 a week in an envelope in cash. And when I graduated from college, they proudly tell you that they, they put him through school for my education. <laughs> and yeah. and I never said they didn't because that's what they believed. And honestly, for them, twenty dollars a week, sending it to me in an envelope was a big deal for them. And absolutely, it was a lot of love in that twenty dollars a week. Yeah, for art supplies, right? For and. You had to reveal that. So, yes, <laughs> instead of paying for my education, I actually bought art supplies. Art supplies. <laughs> the interesting thing about being married to an artist is that you really... Another artist. Another artist. <laughs> uh, and, and this is personal, and I'm going to be personal openly for a moment, because I think... I agree with the feminist idea that the personal is political, but I take it another step farther and to say that the personal is political and is spiritual. When I first saw this woman, this black woman, on the stage, I fell in love with her. Now, I think on the outside she's gorgeous, beautiful, and all of that, but what attracted me to her was the spirit of her artistry. And I still, when I see her on stage, I'm like, that character is connected to the woman that I married. And so I feel like she's almost the embodiment or the living manifestation of my artistic gift that was given to me wow. as an affirmation. She is the other part of me because when I married this woman, Fanny, when we had our children, she's green because that's her artistic name that she's, she kept. And back in the day, we were really rebels. And so we had this idea, you, you keep your name green and I keep my name Lemons. But when our children came into the world, uh, we named them Green Lemons. Mm-hmm. And they got a lot of bullying for that when they were little kids. I've spent a lot of time, as I should, in the classroom, but I feel like I am sometimes pouring out my best self, all of me, to students. And I should, but sometimes I don't feel like I have anything in reserve to funnel my own, you know, creative juices. As a result, then, I pointedly looked at doing two things. Looked at directing outside of USF and performing outside of USF. And so, A Raisin in the Sun at American Stage. Mm. And that is a wonderful experience for me, simply because, you know, people around me, when I say that, they go, oh, yay! And, you know, and there's something about me that they see me being able to embody and play Lena, the mother. I'm looking at it as a challenge because there are things I understand about her, but I still think that I'm some ways away from her. So going in search of her, I mean, I'm smart enough to know as an actor what the gifts that I bring to her and the gifts that she brings to me. What are some of those gifts? Mm. Well, um, the gifts that I bring to Lena, I think she and I both are, are contemplative people. She and I both have a strong belief system 
I have a sense of legacy mm-hmm. and we both share that. The, the number one thing that I know that we both share is a very fierce sense of family and what family means and, and how one is responsible. You never get to walk away from the identity of who your family is. And I think we both share that. What I'm going, what I think I'm going in search of is the part of me that remembers the Lena's that I've seen. And what then in this day and age, and as Fanny, am I interested in exploring? It doesn't have to be new. It's just that I'm the conduit this time. And so what's interesting about that, because if my own grandson, who is 10, were playing Travis in the play, then what kind of meaning would I have? you know, as the grandmother to that Travis. And so I think about those things. I think about our eldest son. He is very much like Walter Lee in terms of wanting to make his mark in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I find myself (laughs) saying things to him that sound cautionary. So those are the things that we have in common. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean that I'm a shoe in to play her. You know, it doesn't mean that at all. So I'm in search of all the things that challenge me about her. You know, I don't thankfully know I'm, I'm my husband's still alive. Mm-hmm. So I don't share that with her. I don't live with any of my children. But, you know, when we moved into the neighborhood that we live in, the pe- our neighborhood is predominantly white. And so I do have a sense of what that's like. Sometimes we're guided so much by the mind and our great thoughts. But the experience of sometimes what we go through in life, the experience sits with us in our gut. And then the heart remembers both of it. The heart remembers what the mind dreamed of and thought of and construed. And it carries with it the experience of the belly. It's very hard to allow something to freely live in your heart and to then bind yourself around it. I'm hoping that it's hard. People might disagree with me, but I think we can lock our minds onto things and our bellies can remember and relive and the experience of what we've gone through sort of sits in our gut. And those two things govern, I think, how we look at the world or how we take the world in or regard the world. But I think the heart is almost like the softener or it can be like a washing machine Mm -hmm. that sort of puts all of that together and jumbles it up and say, you know, no matter how hard it was, how difficult it was, how heinous it may have been or joyous, that the greater good lives in the heart mm-hmm. and it goes beyond and, and it lives past the moment we're in and it lives in the hope of what we can become. You know, it's amazing because the young people who I am blessed to be a part of their educational journey are just absolutely phenomenal, these young people who I just have an opportunity to just be a little bit a part of their lives. I always say to my students, like this morning I said to them, don't miss the learning inside of the fun because I am struck by the life experience, the life experiences that different students have that make going to school hard for them. I didn't have that. I just remember going off to school and I had work study and I could frolic afterwards. And working was something that I chose to do. I needed to work, but I didn't have to work the way some of our students do. I didn't have to work to pay my rent. 
But some students that I teach, one parent may have gotten laid off. I've had students to say that they can't audition because they have to work, because they have to send money back home. And and so the heart that I think I try to bring to them is trying to recognize and remember the context of their experience of education. Sometimes it's just not, they don't get to purely live on campus and have this sort of campus experience. They have to go out and come back and go out and come back. Mm -hmm. So I try to ask them the question of how does this relate to, if you never become famous, what is it about breathing that you will remember, that you will infect everything that you do? Because you don't necessarily have to be a famous actor to let the gift of breath inform how you live through your day. What is it about acting and the gifts and the tools that we are exploring can you use in your life? If I say to you that as an actor, the most important person on stage is not you, it's everybody else who's on stage with you. So if that's true in the play, then that ought to be true in our life. There is an exercise that we play in our class and it's one of the exercises that I use to build ensemble. And it's a version of Truth or Dare. So you say, the thing I want you to know about me is, and I say to the student actor, please let that be true. And then right after you're done, you take a breath and you say, the thing I don't want you to know about me is. And then I say <laughs> to them, please let that be true. The whole point is to say, characters have baggage like humans have baggage. I tell my students, I said, if I told you that when I was in college, I was, I was a sorority girl that you would probably hate, would you believe it based on what you know about me now? And they say, oh my gosh, no. And I said, well, I exactly was. <laughs> I was. I was one of those mean girl sorority girls. Wow. And they go, what? And so we walk into the room and the first decision we make about people are what we see. You know, it's what we see. Then we make a decision about people when they open their mouths. And then the last decision we usually make about a person is the way they behave. But the first decision is so surface. It's based on what we see. And so how can we begin with as many, with, with the outer layers already unpeeled, you know? And so if we say now is not the time for silence, it means that if I come out of a door and I see somebody being robbed, silence is me running to my car and getting in and not saying anything because I don't want to get involved. I don't want to be hurt. I don't know what's going on. And so that's a form of silence. A commitment to squash it, it would be silence. Right. And, now, and, I, and so I'd say now is not the time. There's a tremendous call for people's silence right now. Mm -hmm. I also think that what's being unleashed in the now time that we're also living in is people who have been, I would say, I'm going to not even say people, I'm going to say this voice of masses of people who feel like they have been silenced, mm -hmm. who feel like they've been silenced by affirmative action, who feel like they've been silenced by jobs being shipped overseas, who feel like they've been silenced by people who wear hijabs. And so at the same time that there is this oppressive sort of uh, power 
that is silencing, there's something about that oppressive power that's also unleashing. They now have permission and I say they, I don't want to blanket them as, but so that's why I want to characterize it as this huge mouth rather than say they. Right. (laughs) You know, it's like this huge Um, mouth is opening now and everything that was inside is now coming out. Every thought ever thought. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so at the same time as there's silent, like this heel is being pressed upon people, there is this mouth that's also opening up. And I don't know which I'm most concerned about. Well, uh, well it's interesting, you know, uh, that image that you just created there for us to see. There's a big mouth speaking, but there's a whole lot that's not being said to the big mouth. That's yes. Speaking. I tell my students, y- you know, this is a literature course, but you actually, you're going to find out I'm teaching history, sociology, psychology, ethnography, anthropology, mathematics, popular culture, popular culture media studies, feminist and womanist studies. All of that in the literature course, I thought this was about literary studies. Well, it's literary studies from a standpoint that you really do have to understand this material from a historical standpoint. It's about people, people's relationships to each other from a societal standpoint of what's normal and what's not. And I asked them, what are you all going to do about what's going on right now? All this mouth talk that's butting up against the silence. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? You've been past this world or this time. So whatever you think about what's been handed to you is what you get to do about it because you too will be passing it off. And so what will you do about it? And I would suggest let's move from a concrete, tangible standpoint to a spiritual place. Now this is what... I challenge my students to think about. So education is all about the intellect? Really? It's all about your ability to think through things, and if you put A, B, C, D together, then you can come up with E? doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you have to go to a place of imagination and create another vision of what humanity should be. I say at the center of that, it's through the spirit. It's the spirit of love. And for me, as a writer, and as a painter, and as a teacher, sometimes it means taking the inside out of the belly and revealing it on the outside. I say to my students, you have nothing to be ashamed about because everybody in the room is going through something. The storms of life, guess what? They never go away. So how do we engage the storms in our life? First of all, we're gonna have to talk about them. So let's chat, let's talk, let's communicate, and let's go together. If you stand up for me, guess what I'm gonna do? Because I know your story, I'm gonna stand up for you. Bell Hooks is probably the most preeminent black feminist theorist and cultural critic known today. I first met her while I was, Penny and I were graduate students at NYU. She came to speak at the university, and uh, the course I was taking was called Contemporary Feminism. In that meeting of Bell Hooks and reading her book, it was called Feminist Theory from Margin to Center. Mm -hmm. And she has been a longtime advocate of men, particularly men of color, 
specifically black men advocating for women's rights and she led me actually to it's, it's the second book i published on the feminist works of frederick Douglass and w.e.b du bois wow and no one has ever done an extended analysis of their writings uh, and i call the book uh, frederick Douglass and w.e.b du bois womanist forefathers and you know i've come to this conclusion Barbara, all of this juggling, the teaching, the painting, and the writing, they're all interwoven. And the sort of thematic coherence of these three entities are all bound up in the, I would say, life-saving power of love. And I tell my students, you are going to have to manifest an activist standpoint that is grounded in love for us to get over. Because I say to them that the work that I do in teaching African-American literature specifically is this. Writing by African-American authors is a bridge over troubled water. Mm. And so this work enables me, the painting, the writing, the teaching enables me. I tell my students, I'm the teacher that I never had. Mm. Ah. Mm. Although you must have had good teachers, both of you. Well, it's, it, I, have, I have actually at USF, I have my old teacher's job. Oh, wow. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's kind of cool. He called me and said, I'm going to be retiring and get ready. Condestiny. So yeah. I do try to live up to that. I haven't written in a while. Now, I write poetry all the time. All the time. I did not know that. I write poetry mm. um, because that's what comes to me first. But to take the time, I would love to, love to, love to write material for a oh, one woman yeah. show and have somebody else direct me, but to just create material. And why? Because I think, because I think the, the why has to be answered first. Because I would like to... The, the the woman that I am now is I'm in search of finding her expression in my own words, mm. my own words. But I would that's what I would love to do. I would love to do that. Speak it to make it happen. <laughs> right. How yeah. about you again? Oh, wow. I just it was just fascinating to to hear Fanny yeah. in terms of these projects that she wants to pursue. I'm juggling teaching, writing, painting simultaneously. I'm actually working on how many book projects right now? Three. Uh, <laughs> three. Three book projects. The laughter you're hearing is the wonderful end of our conversation. I've been here with Gary Lemons and Fanny Green. This is Barbara St. Clair, and thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you. Thank and you. thank you for being here. Absolutely. With us. <laughs> You've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.